lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickschiller.com. Just because you see G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and have we got a special guest for you this week. My guest on the podcast this week is Linda Cohenov. Uh, if you're not aware of who Linda is, I'll read you a bit of her bio here. Linda is an author, speaker, riding instructor and horse trainer. She's best known in the field of equine facilitated psychotherapy and the author of five books, The Tao of Equus, A Woman's Journey of Healing and Transformation Through the Way of the Horse, Riding Between the Worlds, Expanding Our Potential Through the Way of the Horse, Way of the Horse, Equine Archetypes for Self-Discovery, The Power of the Herd, A Non-Predatory Approach to Social Intelligence, Leadership and Innovation, and The Five Roles of the Master Herder, A Revolutionary Model for Socially Intelligent Leadership. Linda's books have been used for text in university courses across the country and have received appreciative reviews in publications as diverse as Horse and Rider, Natural Horse, the uh, Institute of Noetic Sciences Review, Shift, Spirituality and Animal Wellness, the Equestrian News and Stride, which is the uh, magazine that's published for the North American Writing for the Handicapped Association. Many courses in equine assisted therapy have her books as a central reading for example, in the UK, one of the uh, growing number of equine facilitated psychotherapy organisations, IFEAL, cites her books throughout their teaching. So among her numerous lectures through the USA and California, she was a presenter at the 2001 NARHA conference and was a keynote speaker at the 2003 NARHA conference. She was also featured presenter at the 2004 International Transpersonal Conference. So Linda is one of the, you know, if you think about it, she's one of the very first people that took, you know, horses and psychotherapy and spirituality and combined them all together. And, you know, I've known of her for years. I've read The Tao of Equus and it was such a pleasure, such a pleasure to have her um, on the podcast to chat with her and get to know her and have her tell a story. Linda Kohanoff, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Thank you, Warwick. It's great to be here. This is going to be exciting. You know, uh, you probably don't know very much about me at all, but, you know, I've been a horse trainer for 30 years and sometime during that time, horses kind of led me down like a bit of a spiritual path, a bit of a personal development slash spiritual path. And you are like one of the... Uh, you know, you're OG. You're one of the original gangsters of that that uh, genre, and I'm interested to talk about how that all came about. So, where did you? Where were you born? I was born in Youngstown, Ohio. It's near Cleveland. Okay, yeah. Um, did you have horses from a young age? No, my parents were afraid of them, and so I was obsessed, and I, I swore I knew every Christmas I was going to get a pony, but of course they didn't fulfill that desire. 
But uh, what I would do is I would sneak out and go through the woods and there was an old horse trainer's farm through the woods and I would be able to get into the back of the property and I would actually find horses that were amenable to being ridden. And they were, it was a transient herd because he was a horse trader. And um, so I would lure certain horses over to the fence and get on them and ride around bareback. I mean, it was insane. My parents would have been so much better off. I would have been much safer if they had actually gotten me even some riding lessons. Because, you know, to be with horses, I was out going crazy with these horses. And the guy would catch me once in a while and chase me off the property. And I'd be back two days later sneaking around, jumping on his horses. So, (laughs) yeah. That was my experience with horses when I was younger. Did you get, where'd you go to college? I went to Miami University in Ohio and I was a music major. Oh, really? So tell us about that. So what, what was your goal to being a music major? What were you planning on doing with that? That was a total accident. Um, I know it was a happy accident, but my parents, because they didn't want me to be with horses, they had me taking music lessons. So I took piano and viola and, and I ended up doing really well in that. Um, and I went to Miami university. I was going to be an environmental education major. And, um, I just decided to try out for the orchestra just so I could keep playing for fun. And they offered me a full scholarship if I would be a music major And I remember telling my parents this over dinner after I came back from college, you know, at least the, you know, the initial, you know, the the time where you go and you find out what classes you're going to take and, you know, get oriented. And I just said, yeah, and here's the funny thing is that they told me they'd give me a full scholarship if I was a music major. And I just kind of snickered and they looked at me with these wide eyes and they were like, oh, Linda, please, just for a year, be a music major. (laughs) And so I decided to be kind of like a double major. So I took the science classes as well as the music classes that first year. I was extremely ambitious and full of energy. And I found out that I really loved music. It was, and it was really studying also music theory. Studying music theory and the physics of sound, for me, it was like studying chemistry with soul. And so I decided to stay a music major and I ended up... uh, getting into radio and being a classical and jazz radio announcer for many years and a music critic. I was a music critic for many years. Um, And so in a way, it was really good that I took that route. I also studied composition and things like that. And um, it was good because it caused me to learn how to listen to things that are beyond words and pay attention to things that are invisible to most people and write about those things. And it's kind of a quandary to learn how to write about things that are beyond words. But being a music critic helped me to learn how to do that. And so when I was in my 30s, and I moved to Tucson, Arizona with my husband, Steve Roach, he's a Grammy nominated recording artist and composer. So we moved out here, and I was a music critic, and I was working at the local radio station, I was the morning classical announcer. And People were driving me insane. Um, All of the music people I was interviewing, all the famous musicians, they were a little bit crazy. And then the people at the radio station where I worked, this was part of a university communications department. They didn't know how to communicate very well at all. And so we had 
all of the, most of the people I knew were suppressing emotion. And yet I was interacting with a large number of people who were paid handsomely for expressing emotion. And what I found was suppressing emotion and expressing emotion were two sides of an incredibly dysfunctional coin. I just thought people are driving me crazy. I have to get out of here. And so living in Tucson, Arizona, in the desert, you can have a horse. You don't need barns and things like that. I mean, they prefer to be outside in large corrals. And so I decided to get a horse in order to get away from people as much as I could on a regular basis just to renew myself. But when I was with the horses, a whole new world opened up to me. And um, I began to see that they were tuning me to become better balanced physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I know that you've had this experience too, Warwick. And they open something up inside of you that invigorates your spirit. And I know that has happened to you as well. This, And so it really was a transformational experience to be with horses as an adult, because all of a sudden I could pay attention to things that I think I would have been completely unconscious about as a child, but learning how to be engaged with a horse in a productive way as an adult was quite an adventure. And I was taking notes on it. And I also knew how to pay attention to and talk about things that were beyond words. And so all of those things came together in causing me to take this journey of writing now five books about what horses have to teach humans about becoming better people. Wow. You know, it sounds like you had a bit of a an education in perception from the music before you got to the horses. So that, like, it's almost like the music set you up, the music and being a music critic and, and all that, that other stuff set you up to be in a space to where you could actually step in with the horses and like take the next step of your journey. Would you say that? Absolutely. And also when you play in ensembles, whether you're playing in a rock band or a jazz combo or a string quartet or a symphony, you're actually communicating with others non-verbally and you're learning how to harmonize with them. And you're learning how to move through mistakes as a flow because, and you're also learning how to experience and express In the case of music, you really do express strong emotions, but you learn how to do that without dissociating or losing contact with everyone around you, you know, so because, you know, if you're like listening to a piece of music like Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade is one that always brings tears to my eyes and it just, there's just these swells of emotion And you have to really stay present during those swells of emotion. You have like, as a violist, you have brass behind you that literally causes your entire body to vibrate when you're sitting in an orchestra. And so you're taking in this intense somatic input and your whole body's vibrating and you're playing with others and you're, you know, having to stay present because if you get too excited about the music the bow flies out of your hand and hits the conductor and he falls off the podium or whatever. And the whole thing comes to a crashing halt. So you actually learn how to be present in the midst of strong, positive and strong, intense emotions, like, like fear or anger or like a deep longing, sad second movement and a sprightly third movement and a powerful final movement. So what you're learning is a huge amount also of emotional agility 
And all of those things really come into play when you're working with horses. Wow. Yeah. You just said something that I've only just become aware of. You're talking about uh, sitting in front of the brass and that, that somatic experience. So I have spent most of my life in a bit of a dissociative shutdown type state. So I have, I've had no, nothing going on in my body in the last probably three or four years. It's, you know, I've been doing a lot of different things and it's getting more and more And here a little while ago. I, it occurred to me why people go to like raves with that, that music because it, oh, it hits you in the body, like you feel it in your body and especially like the bass, you know what I mean? And I had never ever, you know, I'm a bit old for the rave scene. Um, so I'd never, it never occurred to me why they like to do that. And it's a, and I realized, oh, it's this somatic thing. But I, you know, I've been to concerts and loud music doesn't, didn't even resonate in me because there was really nothing going on in there. Now, you know, look at my dog makes me vibrate. So, you know what I mean? But, <laughs> but yeah, when you said, you know, you're in front of the brass and that's that, you, that energy going through you and that somatic experience, I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, that's, that's cool. There's something else I wanted to ask you about because, for me, it seems that the more of a spiritual journey I go on and I see other people go on, the more connected to everything around them people become. And a big part of that is connecting with nature and realizing just how much nature communicates, like with each other, like if you've read The Secret Life of Trees or any of those sorts of things. And you were said you wanted to be environmental education, uh, in environmental education. It, what what was that about? What were you hoping to do there? Environmental education is is like taking science back into nature, and so mm. so you it, what you're really doing is learning how to be in nature and how to be receptive to nature. Um, so if you're in that kind of education, you're you're taking people out in nature and. And having them, you know, really learn how to pay attention and, and listen to nature and to protect nature. Environmental education has a quality of environmental protection to it as well. But I think one of the, the biggest misconceptions people have over and over and over again in our culture is that nature is stupid and that nature is right. cruel, that it's a dog-eat-dog, killer-be-killed world out there. And that's just one small side of nature where you have, you know, predators that keep life in balance with the available resources. If we didn't have lions and tigers and hyenas, you know, large herbivores would eat all the available grass and they die a long, slow death from starvation. Um, are you from Australia? Yeah. Okay. So when I was in Australia a few years ago, they were talking about how all the kangaroos were overrunning um the wilderness areas outside of, um, I guess it was outside of Melbourne and Sydney. And I was like, well, you know, several of the people I stayed with were upset because these kangaroos were coming in and eating all the grass for their horses. And it was getting overrun with kangaroos. And I'm like, well, what happens with that? And they said, They're, the kangaroos don't have any natural predators other than man and woman, I guess. 
Um, and so that was very interesting to me. That's why I guess you have people going out and hunting kangaroos and you can order kangaroo steaks in uh, restaurants in Sydney, Australia, um, because it, it is part of an effort to keep the kangaroo population in balance. Because in certain areas, they were saying that the kangaroos were eating the available food and that they were they were dying these long, slow deaths from starvation. So predators are an important element of keeping life in balance, but that's not the only element. I mean, I was so excited to find out there was a book written in 1902 by this Russian prince by the name of Peter Kropotkin. And the book is called Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution. And in this book, he talks about how he he was in, lived in Darwin's time and he got really excited about Darwin's theory of natural selection and evolution and he was a Russian prince. He was very well educated, had a lot of time and money on his hands. So what he did was he commandeered a group of 50 horses and 10 Cossacks. And he headed out across the Australian or not the Australian, the Siberian outback. And he was going to collect examples in nature to support Darwin's theories. And at that time, Darwin's theories were already being co-opted by really aggressive human forces like like royalty or like uh, robber baron style capitalists that were really activated at that time. And um, they were all saying, yeah, you know, Darwin's theory justifies a kind of social evolution. Like if I'm rich and powerful, then I deserve to actually, as an evolutionary force, to subjugate all these other people underneath me and take advantage of them. That's what it is. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. But that's actually not what Kropotkin found. He actually found that mutual aid was as much or more of a factor in having a species really thrive than competition for limited resources mentality. He also talked a lot about competition avoidance in nature. Now, when you were growing up and you were studying evolution, did your teachers talk about competition avoidance in nature? No. Uh, you know, the thing is, when you, when the whole schooling system is based on capitalism and colonialism, you get told one view of the world which and it makes sense if that's your view of the world. Yeah, you can you can find evidence to support that, and then you just tootle along with life for that. But yeah, after a while, you get to realize, hey, that's that's one lens you can look at things through when it highlights all the things in that lens, but it doesn't highlight the other stuff. But if you you know, I'm a huge fan of Wayne Dyer. You know, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And yeah, no, they didn't. There's a lot of stuff they didn't teach us in school. Yeah. And if you think about it, this evidence is all around you. I mean, competition avoidance, when bears hibernate for the winter, that's competition avoidance behavior. And it's supported by hormonal changes that makes the bears and skunks and other animals that hibernate, it makes them really drowsy. They, I had a, a really good childhood friend who had a pet skunk. And every winter, that skunk would hide in the pots and pans in the dark under the kitchen sink because the, the, the skunk, even though she was living in a very warm, artificial environment inside, she still had a hormonal response that caused her to be incredibly drowsy for about three months. So if we wanted to play with her, we would pull her out of a, a pot in the back of the sink, underneath the sink, 
And we would play with this really drowsy animal that was just like, looked like she had no bones. She was just like falling asleep with everything you were doing. So the fact that nature creates hormonal shifts that encourage competition and avoidance is significant. And there's another really big hormonal shift that happens in nature that encourages um, encourages reaching out to others over a kind of um, you know cutting off contact. So nature is also about connection and contact with others. And there's a hormone that's released called oxytocin in all mammals, and oxytocin buffers the flight or fight response in favor of a calm and connect response. And it increases learning capacity as well. And so nature has hormones for competition avoidance. It has hormones for connection. It has hormones to buffer the fight or flight response in favor of connection. And so there's other things that we're seeing now. I know that you talked with Dr. Rebecca Bailey a few weeks ago, and she and I have been working on a modality called connection focused therapy. And it's, it has, it's informed in part by a new theory called the polyvagal theory. And the polyvagal theory actually explains a lot about what horses are capable of and why they're capable of helping us, for instance. But the polyvagal nervous system in all mammals actually is a, is an innovation in the nervous system that obliges us to connect with others um, in order to, to feel safe and for the nervous system to grow and operate at an optimal level. So this idea of the lone wolf or, you know, I'm just going to strike out on my own or I'm done with people, I'm, I'm going to move to a desert island. You know, we all feel like that sometimes, right? Um, your polyvagal nervous system actually makes it so that in order to reach your full potential, you have to connect with others. And so nature is about connection. It's about mutual aid. It's about competition avoidance. And yes, there are predatory elements in nature to keep life in balance, but that's one small part of what nature is all about. So, you know, I just, uh, I just have always felt, and now we have a lot of scientific information to back it up, that nature has both benevolence and also intelligence. Oh, most certainly. So we are on, this is like episode 100 and maybe five or something of my podcast, but episode number two was called The Science of Connection. And so episode number one, it was called Changes. And I, today I'm going to do a podcast, or excuse me, <coughs> I'm going to do a podcast, but I'm going to talk about, I, I now view the world completely differently than I had a few years ago. And I talked about things that have happened that, that, facilitated that but episode number two was called the science of connection and i had been doing things with horses for a while that was out of the ordinary from what most horse trainers do with horses and it seemed to be working i had no idea why it was working and then i discovered polyvagal theory and polyvagal theory explained why the little things i was doing was working and yeah that led me down a whole rabbit hole of all sorts of things um, you were talking about, uh, you know, animals cooperating. And like I mentioned the book, The Secret Life of Trees before, you know, the trees communicate with each other. Sometimes they'll, they will, sometimes they will poison other trees, but sometimes they will feed other trees. You know, like in that book, they talk about finding 
when they've been felling trees in the forest and they'll find a stump that's still alive. Well, it's got no way to photosynthesize. You know, it's, it's got no leaves. It can't feed itself and the other trees around it are feeding it. Have you ever heard of a book called What Do Animals Think by Carl uh, Safina? No, I haven't heard of that book. It's I'm interested Beyond words, immediately. <laughs> Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. I'm reading it right now. Uh, Chrissy McDonald, so Mark Rashid's wife, recommended it to me. And I think it's one of those books like there's life before reading that book and life after reading that book. But they, the book is about whales, wolves, and sorry, elephants, wolves, and then whales. I think it might, I haven't got to the whale part of it yet. But the whole the whole part about elephants and just how how such a highly evolved social creature they are. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Now, you were talking about the skunk and the hibernating thing before. Yes. I um, I messaged this to my therapist a couple of days ago because we, we had a talk about winter and things like that. But listen to this. Uh, plants and animals don't fight the winter. They don't pretend it's not happening and attempt and carry on living the same lives they lived in the summer. They prepare. They adapt. They perform extraordinary acts of metamorphosis to get them through. Winter is a time of withdrawing from the world, maximizing scant resources, carrying out acts of brutal efficiency and vanishing from sight. But that's where the transformation occurs. Winter is not the death of the life cycle, but it's crucible. That's beautiful. Where did you get that? Mm. Did you write that? Uh, no, no, I didn't write that. No, it was, it's by Catherine May from a book called Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. Oh, nice. Uh, but... You know, the more I get into all sorts of weird, wonderful stuff, the more I realize that, oh, the answers are in nature. Like, you know, we just go about, you know, we didn't evolve to live the way we live these days. You know, we haven't really, you know, we haven't evolved much in, if at all, I don't know, in the last 10,000 years since we were kind of hunter-gatherers. We we are in a hunter-gatherer body, not living a hunter-gatherer life and living in groups and, you know, from the little things like, co-sleeping with our children and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I think for me and for people I associate with, you know, I think the horses are an introduction or in order to get along with horses, you have to be able to um, understand nature, but you have to be able to, you know, it's not about, it's not about that survival of the fittest thing that you talked about before and if you have that mindset, you will have some trouble with horses. You will, yes, you know, you will. And, then, <laughs> and and you will you will have to come up with techniques to get through that trouble, which probably brings you just more trouble. But at some point in time, I think if you spend long enough time around horses, you finally get to where you realize that most of the trouble you're having is, is caused by your interpretation of the situation from the very beginning. Like for me. As a horse trainer, I was very good at very empathetically solving problems. Like it's not, you know, it's not a bigger stick type um, approach. It was more a go back to the beginning and figure out where the problem's coming from. Um, but the more I've gotten into it, the more I realize, oh, no, it's way further back than that. And it's my interpretations of those first interactions, basically lack of connection, you know, lack of connection from the very start to where it's a, it's, it's not a symbiotic relationship, but it's, I'm in charge. And for me, it comes back to, 
you know, the, the culture in my childhood, which was the, you know, the parenting style in my childhood, which was stop crying or give you something to cry about. You know, it's, it's that children should be seen and not heard. And, and that kind of carries forward with you, you know, that's a part of who you are sort of thing. And then you tend to interact with the world that way, including horses. And so you get very good at certain techniques to train horses or whatever. But the more I, the more I get into this, into the connection with horses, the less techniques I need later on because you realize that the techniques you needed later on were actually techniques to counteract the problem you created in the first place, if, I, if you get what I mean. <laughs> yeah, and there's, it, it really goes all the way back to how horses are, are weaned um, oh, yeah. because people were not um, thinking of horses as intelligent, much less that they learned from their parents. I mean, in the 1990s, you know, it was still considered um, scientific fact that they, people would say horses didn't have emotions. That's since been disproved scientifically um, by the Cambridge Declaration on Consciousness in Non-Human Animals. That in 2012, a group of scientists got together at Yale or Princeton, some famous university, and they actually signed a statement declaring that all the research shows that animals have emotions and feelings. They show intentional behaviors. They're not biological machines. And so it took that long to finally get a group of scientists to study what the rest of us can see in front of our eyes to finally make that declaration. I think you should read that book, What Do Animals Think? Um, what did I say? That That's the subtitle. Uh, Beyond Words. Because it's called Beyond Words, What Do Animals Think and Feel? And the, it's all about that exact thing right there, how scientists for a long time, if you anthropomorphized in the slightest bit, that was not scientific and you were wrong and animals don't have emotions. And the way this, this guy puts some arguments in the book, like he, he has people, scientists tell him, well, animals aren't humans, so they don't have the same emotions. And he goes, yes, but what you have to remember is humans are animals. Absolutely. You know, a lot of times when we get accused of anthropomorphizing animals, it's like a no-no to anthropomorphize humans a lot of times. We don't really give humans credit for the deep levels of feeling and and the deep insights you can have beyond words as humans. And so, you know, a lot of times, I, I guess I, I saw this term in a book years ago in a book called Adam's Task. Um, and it's about naming animals and other aspects of animal intelligence, but it's a very old book and it's a very, it's, it's not an easy read. It's written very stiffly, but it's very interesting. And the author talks about how as humans, we not only mechanomorphize other animals, in other words, think of them in the style of a machine. We do that to ourselves. We mechanomorphize ourselves. And we think a lot of times that, it is our brain that is really in charge and that the rest of our body is just this big hunk of meat that carries our brain around. And that's not true at all. I mean, it's very clear that your body has all kinds of forms of intelligence. In fact, it's like your body is the horse that your mind rides around on. It's a sentient being, not a machine. And we all know what it feels like to have your mind and your brain thinking, I'm going to do one thing, and your body's leading you in a completely different direction with a completely different opinion about things. 
And so learning how to form, I would say, a natural horsemanship partnership with your own body is the beginning of really breaking through to having a better relationship with your horse and the rest of the world. Yeah, like what you said about, you know, we've been taught to believe that the, you know, it all, all comes back all the way back to, I think, therefore I am, you know, like the, the head is the thing and the body's nothing. But, you know, like these days they can prove that there's as many, um, I suppose you call them neuroreceptors in your gut as there is in your brain. Like you have three brains, you have your head, your heart, and you, you, your gut. And yeah, I think we are taught to be in our head and not in our bodies at all. And, and we, we're missing all the, all the good stuff down there. Yeah, I mean, just to, to understand that we have more neural cells in our gut than in our entire spinal column, and that your heart has a mini brain with at least 40,000 neural cells. And also, there are neural cells running freely through your body, through your bloodstream. So your entire body is this gigantic tuner and receiver and amplifier for all kinds of information coming from the environment, coming from other people you're interacting with, from other beings, and also just your own internal compassing system, maybe what we might call intuition. The body is, I mean, really only 10% of human communication is verbal. That's what psychologists said in the 1990s when they studied this. And some of that, some of the other 90% has to do with vocal tone. But, you know, if you're only paying attention to what you can speak about in words or write about in words, um, you're, you're, uh, you're not even tapping into that other 90%. I mean, imagine if somebody said to you on your first day of, you know, med school and you want to be a brain surgeon, if they said, yeah, we're so happy you're here, you made it into Harvard Medical School, and we're going to teach you 10% of what you need to know to be successful as a brain surgeon, wouldn't that <laughs> seem like the biggest, most dangerous ripoff in the world? And when yet, you put it that way, yeah, when yeah, you put it that and, way. You know, so in terms of interacting with a horse who's not paying, who's really paying attention to the other 90% big time, um, if you're only floating around in that 10% of what can be translated into words, you're missing a huge amount of information. And the horses have a way of drawing us in to that really embodied experience in life. Um, and when you, you know, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say there's a, there's a book that someone gave me a couple of years ago called Radical Wholeness. And in that book, they talk about a, um, an East African tribe called the Anglo-Iwe tribe. And they they say that we have nine senses. Um, and one of those senses is something that they call sese salame. And sese salame translates into English as feel, feel with the flesh from the inside out. So it's that somatic experience of your body being like you just said, like a, like a tuner. And you can tune into all sorts of vibration and energies and that sort of thing. And that that's... And see, what they don't do is drum that out of their children. It's talked about, it's part of who they are, and so it's perfectly normal. And I think we're all born with that anyway. And then we, this culture that we live in, this society we live in, doesn't address it, doesn't talk about it, doesn't promote it, doesn't discuss it. And we kind of, we kind of lose that. 
ability. Well, it's and a, I think it's a the, really clever social control. If you can cut somebody off from their all of the other 90% and all of the somatic feeling, sensory experiences, and you make them focus on just the brain and just the words of authority figures, you can mesmerize people into doing whatever you want them to do against their own best interests. And so cutting people off from their bodies is an actual tactic to make us more susceptible to the influence of authority figures who do not have our best interests at heart. And this has been going on for a while. If you if you think yeah. about, uh, you know, you think about burning so-called witches at the stake, you know, anybody that had any sort of intuition with animals or healing abilities, they were, you know, the, the, at the time it was the church, um, eliminated them for, from society. I mean, society, I was reading something the other day and it said, you know, during the the Middle Ages, all of the really intuitive people, the ones that were really connected to things, they were all, you know, either had their heads chopped off or burnt at the stake or whatever. And it's like there was a, you know, the, the Inquisition was almost like the Inquisition against the connected people. Well, yeah. And, and you know, from a church perspective, I mean, this has been going on regardless of religion for a long time. But from a church perspective, what they did was they made anything having to do with the body or sensory experience or sensuality evil. And so that's another way they really just solidified that way to cut us off from our wisdom, our own inner wisdom, and cause us to be basically like cogs in the wheel to serve their own nefarious purposes. Yeah, and the, the more I get into this stuff, the more I'm, I am really interested. I'm really interested in like shamanic stuff, um, but what I'm really interested in is, let's call it collective wisdom, collective consciousness, uh, earth wisdom, like the the – you know, I've I've had a lot of different people on the podcast. Um, do you know uh, Rupert Isaacson? Yes. You I know, don't so know Rupert him. Took, I, I know of him. So, you know, Rupert took his son on four different healing journeys around the world to see different different shamans. And, you know, one's in Mongolia. One was uh, in the rainforest, the Daintree Rainforest in Australia. One was a Native American healer in Arizona. And one was in the Kalahari, Bushmen in the Kalahari. And these are cultures that are, you know, thousands of years old, with thousands of year old traditions that have been around since before ships sailed around the world. So information didn't go from one place to the other. But I think three out of the four of them, their ceremonies and the things they did, like they sucked black sticky stuff out of Rowan's head and threw it away in their shamanic ceremony. And it's like, they all did the same the same thing, and they've all been doing the same thing from for thousands of years. So it's you know obviously it's like earth wisdom. It's not like oh someone sent someone a letter and they read it and they, this is how to do it. You know, like I a few years ago I went to um, Florida and did a three day ayahuasca ceremony, and I so learning about ayahuasca. Uh, you know, it comes from a vine and a leaf from the Amazon that get boiled up together and that works. And you think about there's a, you know, there's something like 800,000 different species of plants in the Amazonian jungle. 
How do they figure out which two to put together? Well, the ayahuasqueros from down there will say, oh, the plants told us. You know, it's that earth wisdomy stuff. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's the stuff I'm really interested in these days. And anyway, getting back to the horses with what you do. Well, we, we have a lot of shamanic. introduction to yeah. that. Well, I mean, horses um, awaken shamanic states in people. Um, and so that is like when I do equine facilitated experiential learning workshops. Um, and sometimes even when I'm working with therapists, with people with trauma, sometimes we do purposefully engage shamanic states of consciousness that allow you to ship things very efficiently in a way that your logical mind can't get to on its own. And horses are well-known across, across multiple cultures as being able to take humans between this world and the so-called other world, in other words, into an altered state of consciousness. And um, there are multiple myths throughout the world that horses are capable of doing this. And so those of us who've worked with horses who've accidentally at times tripped off into some kind of expanded state of consciousness know this for real. This is not just a metaphor. This is not just a myth. This is an, uh, these myths are actually telling us that horses are capable of doing this. And so we actually have a variety of different um, principles and experiences that exercise this ability in people through work with horses um, in ways that we actually don't need to take um, ayahuasca or psychedelic mushrooms or something. I'm, I'm not against that. I, I have definitely taken some of those substances in the past for deep work. Um, but with horses and imagery associated with horses, you can actually access these altered states and have learned to have a little bit more control over them. Because as you know, if you take something like ayahuasca, you're on that train for 10 to 12 hours. You don't get off. You don't have a choice, right? <laughs> right. And, and it can yeah. be frightening at times and very transformational too. But when you access altered states through um, working with horses and using um, certain horse-related myths and metaphors... If you're going too deep, you just open your eyes and sit up. We do journeys, you know, that, that exercise this ability. And part of the part of the ability to exercise this is the ability to control the experience to a certain extent so that you can call on these altered states, these expansive transformational states at will. And you don't necessarily need the drugs. You can actually exercise your consciousness to shift into those states. They're milder, certainly, than if you're going to take something, a, a plant medicine. But we have that capacity to do this. And the horses are there to help us learn how. So tell me more about the altered states working with horses. Normally on the podcast, I don't usually get into what people do. You know, it's more about it's the journey on podcasts. It's what sure. what led you on this journey? But I'm I'm now fascinated by what you just said. So, what sort of things um, do you do, and how are the horses involved in that? Well, it it just started out, you know, through experience. So this fits right into the idea of the journey because. When I initially got my first horse, as I mentioned, I was just trying to get away from a bunch of crazy people. Um, and 
One of the things though, that <laughs> so you happened, into the horse world. <laughs> <laughs> right. So then, yeah, I know that that was another issue. I realized once you go to the barn, you realize there are certain people you cannot get away from. But um, in any case, um, one of the things that would happen to me when I was with the horses is that they would have I would have to pay more attention to somatic um, information coming in. You know that other ninety percent, the body wisdom, um, and I learned like almost like a vocabulary of nonverbal communication. Um, and um, over time, I was able to really focus on these elements of the vocabulary of nonverbal co- communication and learn how to teach them very specifically with different kinds of horse activities. But um, at, early on, what happened too was I, I started to have really expansive um, intuitive experiences um, so it was like the horses were opening up intuition and mystical experiences. Um, sometimes it would be in dreams that night, and sometimes it would be um, also just situations where the horses would open something up in me, and I would have access to a lot of material I didn't even realize it was possible to pick up on. You know, we would call this, you know, we would put this under the heading of intuition, expanding intuition. But it got really bizarre, really bizarre. It's like there's an intelligence in nature and there's an intelligence to horses. There's a kind of collective intelligence to horses that I eventually accessed. I call it the horse ancestors. But um, one of the things that happened was my I had a mare and a stallion named Rasa and Midnight Merlin. Midnight Merlin was the stallion and he was a basket case. He was very dangerous and I learned a lot from working with him, as I know, and I'm sure you have learned from very difficult horses at times, things that you could use um, in the, you know, in less intense situations. But um, Merlin and Rasa made it a few times and they didn't have any um, foals. And so I, I wasn't really running a breeding farm. So one year I just let them mate once just for fun, just because they like to be together. And um, we had the vet come out and check Rasa and she wasn't pregnant. But then what happened was it was deceptive. It was hidden. The pregnancy was hidden from us. And not only was the pregnancy hidden from us and the vets, it turned out that Rasa had twins and twins are very dangerous in horses. Usually they right. don't survive. Usually they're they're born premature and they die immediately. Um, and we didn't know Rasa had twins. Eventually we realized she was pregnant when she kept getting fatter. Um, and then we could feel a baby moving around in there. But she ended up having twins. And one was stillborn and the other one was so premature that we had to milk Rasa and bottle feed this baby for 10 weeks, we had he needed 24-hour care for 10 weeks. And I, I talk about this in my book, Riding Between the Worlds. But um, what happened was, because this foal needed 24-hour care, he couldn't stand and nurse. We had to put him in a sling so he wouldn't damage his legs. But we fed him with a bottle, and I would be taking the night shift. And so I started to research the symbology of twins, just I don't know, just because that's kind of what I do. When something new comes up, I like to research it. And what I found was that male twins in particular across multiple myths through multiple cultures are associated with horses. And a lot of times one of the male twins dies. And um, some of these male twins 
are either horse trainers in in Greece. They are horse trainers, or they can they can morph into horses at will. And um, so the they're often associated also with the healing arts. So the Osvens in India are a group of or, or two males that can turn into horses, and they created the healing arts. And um, it's kind of a long story, but in any case. What became very apparent was in these myths, one of the male twins dies. And what happens when one of the male twins dies is that it connects the living twin to the other world. So that Mm. this mythology of two male twins is the idea that every one of us has twin forms of consciousness. This logical earthly twin with a set location in time and space and a biography. And then this otherworldly twin that exists in a realm that has much more potential and freedom. And so the horses themselves actually manifested actual twins, one of which was stillborn and one of which lived. And through that, I was able to create a series of exercises and perspectives that allow people to basically exercise their twin. And so when people are learning how to access shamanic states of consciousness, for instance, We actually bring in this idea of twin forms of consciousness. So this allows people who you don't have to change your religion in order to engage shamanic states of consciousness from this horse facilitated model. And so I've actually had I actually had a a Methodist minister from Lubbock, Texas, come to a workshop that involved leadership (laughs) training, but some shamanic elements. And he was able, as a Christian minister, to go into this altered state and to have a tremendous integrative experience without any assistance from any substances. So I do believe that the horses have a way of exercising this in humans and giving us also a mythology that allows us to expand our consciousness. Well, I was just mesmerized listening to all that right there. That's right up my alley these days. Um, Where am I going to go next with this? (laughs) I am curious too. I'm I'm excited about what you just said and I want to know more about that, but I'm still, I'm still wanting to kind of go back to the beginning to, to, did you end up, so when you, started down this path, did you end up getting like a psych degree or anything like that? No. um, What happened was I, because I was a a journalist, um, I I was also writing for a a regional paper as their music critic, the Tucson Weekly, kind of like the LA Weekly Weekly sort of thing. And um, I decided I was writing some cover stories for them about a variety of topics. And I, and I decided to write a story on what horses have to teach people because a lot of people in Tucson have horses. It's easy to have horses. It's not that expensive. Um, and I was learning a lot and changing a lot from working with horses. And I was wanting to write an article about that. And I got the assignment and I started to write the article and I realized that I couldn't characterize this situation in 2000 words. And so I started writing my first book called The Tao of Equus, A Woman's Journey of Healing and Transformation Through the Way of the Horse, to sort of chronicle my journey um, and to really 
learn how to describe what it is that the horses are teaching us that is so often beyond words. And over time, I got better and better at it. And I also realized that there was a lot of scientific research coming up in the early 2000s that could help to explain very strange experiences I had been having with the horses. And so over the years, I just keep collecting scientific um, studies that help to describe actual experiences that just blew all of my circuits. And then once you can see, you can kind of normalize it then because your logical brain then is willing to accept these other possibilities. Once some scientist has put his stamp on some kind of theory that helps to explain it. So, you know, I'm interested in science and spirituality. I'm interested in physical manifestation. I'm interested in the deep emotional life. I'm just really interested in, in being whole, in, in having a holistic approach. And by that, I mean body, mind, spirit, and emotion. And this world and this state of consciousness and all of those amazing other states of consciousness that the horses can help us access as well. You know, it's interesting. I mentioned before that I spent most of my life not having any somatic experiences. And, and as time goes on, there's more and more. But right then, that little bit that you just said right then, I kind of got this sensation. And, and my therapist has got me, anytime I get a sensation to pause and like feel it, what does it feel like? Does it have a shape? How would I describe it? And so I was kind of half thinking about that while you're talking. But I got hit in the chest here with something rather right then that was very, very pleasurable. It was, it was, yeah, that was, that was actually very cool. You mentioned right then, uh, the Tao of Equus and before you mentioned the, what did you call them? The, the horse ancestors. Cause I remember reading that in the book where they kind of came to you in a dream, didn't they? I, well, I, it was, I'm, it was I'm, more I'm, than a dream. It was, it was like being followed around by, by a, like a, a thickness in the air, a force that had a kind of a, a intention and intelligence to it. And um, I felt like I was going crazy. And I mean, the horses did open me up to this. Um, and so I ended up going to a counselor. And I do talk about this in the Dial of Equus. And she had had some experience with shamanic states of consciousness. So I felt like she wasn't going to think I was totally crazy. Um, but through working with her, she helped me access this um, form of intelligence. It's hard to explain because a lot of it is beyond words um, and beyond what we would normally consider to be logic. Um, but it is the horse ancestors is like the collective wisdom and mind of the horses. It it would hold all the memories of every horse who ever lived. Um, it mm. really also feels like it is. Like you can call any horse's spirit out of the the horse ancestors complex. So I, I even use it with living horses sometimes. I, I'll use it as a translation device, really. Um, and I've had really wild experiences. I've had some dud experiences and things where not much is happening. And then I've had really wild things. I had this man one time ask me if I could connect with the spirit of one of his horses and I'm not so much, I'm not really a medium. I've never practiced that, but I just said, okay, I'll give it a try. And I connected with this horse and it kept drawing my attention to its left eye. And I said, I don't know, I'm not getting anything from this horse other than just, it keeps showing me its left eye. And he said, oh yes, my horse was blind in her left eye. 
you know, so how do you explain something like that? There is some way it's almost like your brain is like a radio tuner. And mm. if you switch, you know, you learn how to, to function on more than one channel, I guess. And some of these things are available on other channels. So I would say the horse ancestors channel is like another channel. And if you tap into that, and I think it's good to always have healthy skepticism about these things, you know, but you can have healthy skepticism to work with the material in the same way we have healthy skepticism about making choices from a logical point of view. So, um, yeah. And I, I've used it like one time, for instance, I used it with a training challenge. So my twin horse who was born, who survived, his name is Spirit. I named him Spirit because he actually had more spirit than body at that moment. He was so premature, but uh, he was very mouthy for a while. And we were trying everything. I was even trying the Tellington Jones tea touches on the mouth that are supposed to relax uh, the mouth. We tried everything. And so finally, I just said, okay, I'm going to see if I can consult the horse ancestors about this. And so I just, you know, you don't want to be in an altered state present with a loose horse. So I always step away from the horses and I might be over the fence under a tree or I might go inside. And then I basically for back, this is a way it appears to me is that I'm, I'm connecting with the horse ancestors, the wisdom of all horses who've ever lived and have yet to be born. And I'm actually calling forth the spirit or the wisdom of a particular horse. And so in this case, it would be spirit. And I was, I was just saying, you know, I need some help here. This is terrible. He's grabbing the lead rope and he's jerking it out of people's hands and he's biting people's clothes. And I don't want to keep smacking him on the mouth or something like that. That would just create a, a traumatized horse. And so all I saw was just this image behind my eyes and it looked like a negative of a film. And it, I saw spirit's face and then I saw his mouth had a lot of energy, chaotic energy around it. And then I saw his ears light up. And so that's all I would see. And I saw this over and over and over again. And I'm like, well, this is pretty useless. I guess this horse ancestors thing is, you know, not working today or, or maybe never works. Maybe it's just all my imagination. So I went outside and I said, okay, I don't, I'm just going to play with this for a minute. So I had the halter in my hand and I noticed that as I put the halter near spirit's face, he got, his face got really agitated. And then I said, tell me about your ears spirit. And when I said that and looked at his ears, it's like his mouth relaxed and it's like his eyes kind of were looking for his ears. His attention went up to his ears, his mouth relaxed, and I put the halter on. So I've used that with other horses that are really mouthy and have trouble putting the halter on. I'll just draw attention away from the horse's mouth and focus on the horse's ears and he puts the halter on. So, I mean, how do you come up with stuff like this? I mean, our brains have a capacity to access things that that's far beyond words and also far beyond logic. Yeah, and I think that's – I talked before about <clears throat> reconnecting with nature itself. But I, I, I think, you know, back when we were hunter-gatherers or whatever we were um, – we all had the, I think we all had the ability to do that. And I think it's the, I think the challenge is to rewild ourselves or reacquaint ourselves with that. It's interesting you talk about the, 
Oh, he didn't say collective consciousness, but what did you say the, the, about all the horses, the knowledge oh, of all the, the horses? It would be like the collective consciousness of horses, um, the collective right. memory, but the collective wisdom of horses. Actually, when I was working with this counselor who was also highly intuitive, she, she taught me a lot of intuitive skills that I since have used to teach others. But one of the things she did was she taught me to, to connect with this force, and I asked what it was. And the words that came into my mind when I asked that question was the horse ancestors called itself the wisdom that gives rise to the form of the horse. Interesting. The wisdom that gives rise to the form of the horse. And so all of it, it's almost like it, it has a creation feeling to it. it. It has a feeling of intelligent creation. And so that, you know, there's like a, a form or a complex of wisdom that wanted to express itself in a certain, and it created the form of the horse to express that wisdom. And so I think that what you and I and so many of your listeners and so many of my colleagues and clients, what we're all interested in is accessing the wisdom that gives rise to the form of the horse and actually over time learning how to incorporate that wisdom into our mind-body awareness systems um, to become centaurs, so to speak, so that we have, yes, our human orientation, but we also have this profound wisdom of the horse that we're fully integrating and able to really run with in the world and to lead, lead much more empowered and compassionate and uh, deeply satisfying lives as a result. Yeah, I think so. Have you ever read any books by Rupert Sheldrake? Absolutely. I've met Rupert Sheldrake. I talk about him in my books, oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Because he talks about how they did an experiment with rats at a university somewhere in the world, and they taught these rats to do something that no rats would have ever been taught to do, some strange puzzle or maze or whatever, and every rat took a certain amount of time to figure it out while they were teaching these group of rats. But then they repeated the – they had a university in Australia repeat it and a university in America repeat it and somewhere else. Once they taught that one lot of rats how to do it, every other rat in the world that learned how to do it learned it in half the time. Whereas I believe that. that group of – you know, it was like once, once one lot of rats knew how to do it, the other ones could pick it up easier. And that's that like that collective consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Thing, I mean, that's you know? such a great case for that because – what, it, what happened was these rats learned this, and then that wisdom went into what you might call the rat ancestors, <laughs> yes, <laughs> the rat yes, collective yes. consciousness. And then so every rat in the world <clears throat> could tune into that collective wisdom and access that new piece of wisdom. And Rupert Sheldrake's books, and he talks about the theory of morphogenetic fields, helps to describe this. So believe me, when I was accessing the horse ancestors and thinking I was going crazy, I feel like... Rupert Sheldrake saved my sanity because he was one of the first scientists who I could find something to hang on my hat on with some of these weird experiences. And what's that term he uses? Morphic resonance? Is that it? Morphic yeah, resonance, I think. Morph morphic resonance and morphogenetic fields. Uh, and it all right. it all fits in with this idea of the wisdom that gives rise to the form of the horse. He says that basically um the, the theory of morphic resonance is that there's a complex of wisdom or knowledge that's non-material that every animal that's forming, you know, to, to manifest in this world 
um, can access that wisdom and that that morphic field of, of like rat wisdom or horse wisdom or dog wisdom is also what causes the um, it's, it's almost like he sees uh, our DNA as more like a tuner and receiver for information floating around in the universe. And so then you tune into the morphic field or morphogenetic field of your particular species. And that helps to even create your physical body. So, you know, it, it gives a completely different version of the brain. I mean, the brain, according to him, is not is more like a tuner and receiver than it is just a self-contained functional device. Right. So it's like it's like the difference between, you know, it's like thinking of it, your brain is more like a television receiver. So, you know, you can tune to different channels with your television receiver, but the the programs that come over are floating through the air in an invisible state and you tune into it and you can access that, but your brain is not creating old reruns of I love Lucy or CSI or, you know, some latest wild movie, you know, your brain is actually tuning into the information that's floating free through the universe. And so that was a very helpful idea for me to be able to um, just survive mentally this idea that I was having these strange experiences with the horses. Yeah, I'm I'm lucky because by the time I started going down this path, people like you had been doing it for years, and it's it's all explainable. Whereas you were like, uh, there wasn't a lot of explanation out there for you when I guess when you first started exploring with this stuff. And you, did you did you ever? Here's a question for you: Did you ever think? Because you kind of mentioned it a minute ago, jokingly, but did you ever think I'm going crazy? Oh, yeah. 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 But I, I'm the experiences kept being consistent. And then I was able to um, communicate certain concepts and, and then principles and then teaching activities to people and they could re reproduce similar effects. So then after a while, you're like, OK, this this is legitimate. Um, and. Yeah, it's it's just been quite a wild journey, and um, the horses are still showing us things that, you know, I'm seeing the horses do things all the time that I'm like, well, how would you explain that one, you know? But it's like, it's like you you see a lot of times. I think what happens is we don't see horses doing things and accessing things. We're not paying attention to it, so we just don't even know it's happening. But it's just going on all around us. And so the more you key into horses and, and see them as sentient beings who can teach us a few things as well, um, then the more you start to really access wisdom that is far beyond what we would normally even consider possible. Yeah, but you know, that's... <sighs> Number one, you've got to be present enough to be able to do that. And you've also got to be able to shed the the lens that you've been you know either society or your previous experience with horses you know your men your horse mentors you know you've got to be able to get rid of that lens that has been put there because otherwise you're just creating your own reality like you're only seeing what you want to see or you think you're seeing rather than seeing what's really going on and i think yeah i think that's part of the journey is peeling those layers off like peeling those 
the lenses away so you can actually see what's really there. And I know for me with the horses, the, yeah, the, the less that I want to do with them and the more I just want to listen to them, the more I, I get from them. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's just volumes and volumes you can write about the wisdom that they have to teach and the perspectives that they have in the world. I feel like, you know, like I said, I've written five books and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. So, um, and there's so much more that you can experience with the horses that can ever, than can ever be put in a book too. I mean, we all have these experiences that we just stand and look at each other and we can't even speak about it hardly. Um, and I know that that's part of the reason why you've had this feeling of opening and transformation, you know, and then you're just kind of, you're, it's like the rug's been pulled out from underneath you and you're staring at the universe underneath you just hanging in, in space or something. And it can be really disert, disconcerting at first, but after a while, then you, you're able to create a new world view around you that expands into that space. So then you have a floor again, at least for a while until the next time the, the rug is pulled out from underneath you. You know, I, um, we've got a foal. He's probably eight months old now, I guess, seven or eight months. And, uh, one day I was just out there hanging out with him. And so he's a Palomino. He's got a big white face, but he's got these really blue eyes. But I was, I was just hanging out with him. Just his face was right and kind of right in front of mine, like a foot in front of mine. And I was looking into his eye and suddenly I had this, I could see the being behind the physical shell of this, you know, he was probably four or five months old at the time, but I just, I got a sense of the, whatever it is behind that. And it was a, it was a, it was almost like I was looking into his eye into the universe, but it wasn't the universe. It was, I was looking into his eye and I don't know, I just had this sensation that of this wise, all knowing being behind I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but it was, I haven't actually had that happen. I've had it actually happen with one human since uh, to where I got the kind of the same sensation. And that was actually at the podcast summit talking to someone there, but yeah, it was a, it was a like, it, it was, yeah, it was like uh, the world completely changed. I was, you know, the, the, the veil had been lifted for a, for a moment while I was looking at this horse's eye. It was, yeah, it was a pretty amazing experience. And then, and that of is, course, the bail comes The characteristic back of those, those mystical experiences is that, is that you're searching for words, you know. But I think that if you can find even a few words to write down or, or a quick sketch of a picture of what it was like, even if it's not even close, you're just taking a few notes so that it will induce the – experience later when you when you go back to it you know so so you're not going to ever be able to capture it in words but you can put down enough words that when you read them now you're going to go back into the experience and really feel that soul of that beautiful being that uh, is still living with you it sounds like yes yeah it's pretty amazing what's Very the amazing. horse's How name his name Bodhi, of course. Oh, lovely! Yeah, that works. And did you know? Did you know that the Buddha was an exceptional horseman? 
And that you know, a lot of his read, mindfulness skills, really, I believe, came from his deep understanding of how to work with horses. And I make a case for that in one of my books. So I really do talk about the Buddha in there. And not too many people know that he truly was an exceptional horse trainer. So, well, I was going to say, I just read that recently. But when you then when you continued on, I'm like, oh, I read it in your bio, I think. <laughs> really? Oh, maybe. Maybe, yeah, or, or, maybe. Or one of the one of the things I've looked up online yeah. about you, like it mentioned, it mentioned uh, the Buddha. It mentioned uh, maybe Winston Churchill, uh, George Washington, George Washington. Yeah, that was that was you. Yeah, that was me. Okay, yeah, yeah, I mean, no, when I, I was I... just thinking, I was just thinking, like yesterday or the day before, I read something about the Buddha was a, an amazing horseman. Well, you know, in my I, I talked about this quite a bit in my book, The Power of the Herd. And um, what I did was I, I was researching leadership throughout history across multiple cultures. And one of the things that I found was that really exceptional leaders throughout history were often really exceptional horsemen, horsewomen, or horse trainers. I mean, the percentage is so high, actually, it's unbelievable. Really successful, innovative leaders, not not the ones that you know, oppress people, not but the, the ones who've expanded. Not the right. Not so much the dictators. Well, occasionally, but, you know, um, so one of the things I started looking at is what were these people learning from their horses non-verbally that caused them to create an innovation in human experience and leadership in life? And so the horses have been literally inspiring leaders for years um, to expand our wisdom and our way of being in the world. And I really do believe it's it's completely associated with horses. Mm. Wowzers. <clears throat> yes, amazing stuff. So tell me, how many, you've written five books? Yes. The first, the first was The Tao of Equus? Yes. When did you write that? I wrote that book, uh, that, that book took a long time to write. Um, I probably wrote it between 1998 and when it came out in 2001. And actually, it <laughs> it's the publication of date of the Tao of Equus was 9-11-2001. So on the day that I was all excited that my book was coming out and I was going to do all these cool interviews for the book, it came out on 9-11-2001. So all the Twin Towers wow. are falling or both of the Twin Towers are falling. And, you know, so... It was just a weird experience, uh, but the book still got a lot of traction and, and people around the world started finding it and, and coming out to do workshops and that sort of thing. So um, even with the 9-11 Association, it, it did pretty well. And actually, my editor just called me um, this week and he wants me to write a revised version of the Tao of Equus. Um, and I'm so glad because there's a lot of wild experiences in the Tao of Equus that I can actually describe better about what's going on because the research that can describe it is now actually accessible. So I'm really excited to go back and rewrite this book and add some of the latest research. Yeah, it must have been a, a really hard book to write because, you know, you're trying to put into words experiences that are hard to put into words. Yeah, it was maddening. It took forever. For that reason, because I was trying right. to describe things that were not just surface horse human interactions. I was trying to 
talk about how I had been completely transformed by my association with these animals and what were the things that shifted. And, you know, it reminds me of this article about Ray Hunt. You know, Ray Hunt was one of the original people who influenced so many natural horsemanship um, professionals out there. And I was so interested. I was, I was like reading this like little, you know, these little horse newspapers that everyone gets in their communities that have horses for sale and different ads and things. And they always have little articles and stuff. Well, in this little horse paper in Tucson, they had an article about Ray Hunt. He had come, he had come down and done some workshops and somebody had interviewed him. And she said that Ray Hunt said that um, he talked about, they were talking about some of his innovations of training and stuff. And finally, Ray Hunt said, you know what? There's one other thing that makes it all work. And I don't know what that is. And so that was really, that's really the theme of my book and my work is to describe that one other thing that makes it all work. Um, And it's a bunch of things, actually, but it's all of this stuff beyond words, you know. Right. So I've been on this quest to answer that question. What is it that makes any technique with horses work? It's not mechanical. It's it's something inside of you, something that your nervous system is doing, something that you're doing energetically to extend a connection to the horse and be moved by the horse and have the horse be moved by you. And um, so to really break these things down. You know, a lot of times cowboys talk about developing feel, right? And so what I was really interested in is studying how to methodically help people develop feel. And it is possible to do that. Um, But a lot of times with horse trainers, they, they are focusing on how you use this particular, um, you know, whip or carrot stick that they've created and this particular kind of halter and this kind of rope and this particular activity. But it's always the same. There's one other thing that makes it all work. You can watch five people go in with the same equipment and you can see various levels of success. So there is something that makes it all work. And a lot of times with horse people, we're accidentally over time developing feel. We're accidentally over time developing that one other thing that makes it all work. But we're but it's accidental. It's not purposeful because we don't know how to develop that. But there are ways to develop that one other thing. And so that's that's actually my primary interest in right. um, continuing with all of this. You know, over time, and I've said this before in the podcast, but, I, you know, I've done clinics for many years and, I would come home from a clinic and say to my wife, you know, she'd just say, how'd it go? And I'd go, you know, it was pretty good, but there's just, wow, there's this one lady. I just, I couldn't help her. She was useless. (laughs) You know, and I used to think, I used to say, you know, she needs to get a cat, preferably an outside cat or a stuffed cat because (laughs) she's not very good with horses. But over the time, what I've realized is, is those people are not very good with themselves. They're not very connected to themselves. They're not, you know, they have no self-awareness. They're not sure. They don't know what their body, you know, they're not very congruent, put it that way. And so for a number of years now, I've been focusing more on that part of it as the first step, like being in your own body and being aware of your, your thoughts, your judgments, how you view the world, being aware of your body, because, the, the the technique, if there's a technique involved, it won't work if you don't have all that stuff going on. It sounds like that's what you guys, you know, that are in what your profession, which you're going to get to here in a minute with some of your questions, um, 
that's the big thing you guys are focused on. Because for me, you know, when I do clinics, they are horse training clinics. And so there's a transformational part of it, but people aren't showing up for a transformational experience, which I'm thinking I'd like to kind of change in the future at some point in time. But <laughs> I would love if you change that. Um, I've got to get more education about that. But, that you know, that's I'd really like to start there. But anyway, I just mentioned profession, and you, I've got these questions here that you chose that have some of them have to do with your profession. So I might actually start in on these questions, uh, if you don't mind. Not at all. So your first question that you chose was, if you could spread a message throughout the world, one that people would listen to, what would that be? Or your favorite quote, or both if you've got them. Well, I guess I was, I already covered that when I talked about the fact that nature is benevolent and intelligent and that mutual aid, competition avoidance, um, these are very um, important things in nature that allow us to be successful and not just survive, but thrive. And so the survival of the fittest is not about survival of the strongest and most fierce and intimidating. Survival of the fittest really means those who engage in mutual aid, who uplift each other, um, who who help each other, who this is how you really thrive in the world. And and then bringing in that book, Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution by Peter Kropotkin. It's a great book. Another great book, though, that really starts to talk about the oxytocin response, this hormone that nature created to cause us to buffer the flight or fight response in favor of a calm and connect response. There's a great book by Meg Daly Olmert, O-L-M-E-R-T, called Made for Each Other, The Biology of the Human-Animal Bond. And she makes a really great case for the fact that it was the release of this hormone oxytocin that actually brought horses and humans together and other animals with humans together is that the oxytocin response actually was activated in animals and humans that were designed um, to connect with each other and that we have evolved. We have co-evolved together with these animals, dogs, cats, and horses in particular, cause not only did we change them through selective breeding, but that they changed us as well. And so if you really are interested in that topic, a really great book to read is Made for Each Other by Meg Daly. Made for Orbert. each other. Wowzers. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that message that you had about the, you know, it's not survival of the fittest. And it's, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's like, have you ever read, I mentioned it before. Have you ever read The Secret Life of Trees? Um, I read The Secret Life of Plants. So um, that's, uh, so that sounds like a, another one I need to get. I mean, really, we should just, I, I think everybody in your audience is all about trading exciting books to read. So I'm learning a few new books here talking with you as well. The Hidden Life of Trees, sorry, not The Secret or the Life of Trees. Life of trees. The Hidden Life of Trees. Yeah, it's one of those okay. ones is like trees have personalities and they have communities and they, oh, yeah, it's, once you get into that stuff, it's, it's. Really pretty amazing. Okay, next question is, what do you feel is the worst advice given in your profession or bad recommendation given by people in your area of expertise? But before we do that, we have to quantify, what would you say your profession is? Well, I do um, 
what what I would say is I'm uh, one of the innovators in a field that we would call equine facilitated human development or equine facilitated learning. Um, when I, like I work with mental facilitated health professionals, human development. Yeah, yeah, I love that yes. title. Yeah. And, uh, okay. and I also do equine facilitated therapy in conjunction with mental health professionals like Dr. Yep. Rebecca Bailey. And, yep. um, but also I think, you know, a lot of what I do is I do work with horse people and animal lovers and animal advocates and animal rescue people, um, to teach them that one other thing that makes it all work, that teaches them how to be able to access, things that are going to help them in their relationship with their horses and the other animals in their life. And then ultimately, as you know, with the humans in their life, because if you make those changes and can be that perceptive and assertive and compassionate and centered with animals, then it will translate to your human relationships. Yeah, I get emails all the time like, you know, since I've been following your stuff, blah, 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 I'm getting along so much better with my husband or coworker or boss or children or whatever. And that, I think that's one of the great things about horses is people are passionate about horses. And so they will put the time and effort into it. And they wouldn't put that much time and effort into be showing up better for their husband or their kids or their boss or their coworker, but they'll do it for the horses. And then the, the rest of the world gets the, the benefit of it. One of the amazing yeah. things about horses. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I, I would say that I, I'm getting better at <clears throat> is um, how to take horse wisdom directly back to the human world. So, so like I do um, workshops and lectures in places where horses can't be. And there are some lessons I can teach to people directly um, through various kinds of activities and concepts uh, without the horses. But the wisdom itself comes directly from the horses. Comes from the horses. Okay, so we we quantified your profession, but we haven't answered the question. What do you feel is the worst advice given in your profession? Um, if I if I really think back on when I first started working with horses, what is the worst advice that I ever got? It was leave your emotions at the gate. Um, it's actually not possible to do that. Um, people cannot leave their emotions at the gate. You don't want to subject your horse to the fact that you're angry at a coworker or, or something like that, but you actually can't hide your emotions from the horse. And I actually have looked into and studied a lot of um, scientific theories that, that show why that's impossible. So if you can't hide your emotions from your horse, if you can't leave your emotions at the gate, what are you going to do with them? It has to be constructive. Um, and so over the years I've actually learned, you know, what to do with emotions if you can't leave them at the gate. And um, like, like even suppressing an emotion around humans has a, a physiological effect. So in the book, Social Intelligence by Daniel Goleman, he talks about a study where they had a person who was suppressing an emotion, interacting with a group of people who didn't know, you know, that he was stuffing an emotion, this person. And what they found was that not only did the blood pressure rise of the person who was suppressing the emotion, but the blood pressure of everyone interacting with that person rose also. And so when you're stuffing an emotion, it takes extra energy. And horses, they are so mindful and so aware of shifts in, in you know, the physiological arousal level and blood pressure and heart rate and body language of those who are interacting with the horses. 
Um, so their ability to tune into the fact that you're stuffing an emotion is rather significant. So um, I actually am going to to offer your listeners um, an article that I wrote about this for a French magazine a number of years ago, and I've since perfected it even more about the research involving why you can't leave your emotions at the gate and then what to do about it that's constructive instead. So, um, you know, at the end of the call, um, there will be a way that people can go and just download this article and have that information and, and have that new perspective. I'm looking forward to reading that. You know, it's interesting you're talking about not stuffing down your emotions. So my wife has, over her lifetime, suffered quite a bit of anxiety. And she used to always be into looking for techniques to not have that emotion come up, you know, to to stop that emotion, stop her anxiety. And then as time's gone on, the you know, the next evolution after that is instead of trying to make it go away, to sit with it and actually feel what it is and feel what's behind it. And yeah, that's when I think the transformational work happens. Well, I mean, and the horse has really taught, taught me a four point method for dealing with emotions effectively that might be helpful to your wife. Um, what they do is they feel the emotion in its purest form. So that's what you just described, that step that rather than suppressing it or ignoring it, you feel it. Okay. But that's not all they do. They feel the emotion in its purest form. Then they get the message behind the emotion and they change something in response to that message. And then they do what's most brilliant of all. They let it go and they go back to grazing, back to enjoying life. So most humans never get past step one. Suppressors never even get to step one. They don't even feel the emotion. They're trying to do everything they can not to feel it. But remember when I said that people were driving me crazy in the music world, the expressors were driving me crazy? If you just express and express and express the emotion, that's not useful either. You're not getting to step two. You're not getting the message behind the emotion. Um, And so all the so-called negative emotions are uncomfortable because they're actually course correcting emotions. They're asking you to make a shift to bring yourself back to safety or back to a better relationship with yourself or others or back to joy or back to peace. But the but the discomfort of fear or anger or sadness or grief or jealousy, even even jealousy and envy have really important constructive messages if you really pay attention to them. So um if you can deal that the reason they're uncomfortable, those negative emotions is because they're asking you to change something. And, you know, if we don't feel a little discomfort, a lot of times we're not open to change. It takes effort. And so if the emotion is causing you to feel enough discomfort that you're going to consider doing something else, then it's working for you. And that's what emotions are designed to do. And that's what courses showed me. That's awesome. Uh, your next question here is, what do you do? Where do you go to relieve stress? Or where do you find the motivation or inspiration for what you do? Oh, uh, maybe three major things. First of all, is I like to let the horses loose on the property and just hang out with them. And I can't let them all loose at once because some of them don't get along. So I kind of like let them out in shifts on different days. And then I just mill around with them, you know, and just be like a horse with them. Um, another thing I do is I spend time with a, a small herd of goats. Because horses, you have to be aware around them, right? Right. So if I'm having a day where I can tell that my awareness is pretty low, then I'm going to go hang out with the goats for a while because they're small enough that if they get keyed up about something, they really can't cause me any serious damage. 
And they're such funny beings. I mean, if there's if there's an animal that just has a sense of joy and humor in life, goats are that, right? And I, you know, have a, some dogs too and all of that. But uh, but another thing I do is I, I play and compose music as well. So, um, you know, that that is really, I have a five-string electric violin viola. It's five strings, so it has the range of a violin and a viola. And um, my husband is a recording artist. His name is Steve Roach, and he has over 150 albums out. But he has set up a studio in the house where we have the horses so that when he's there, he has this amazing studio and he bought me a synthesizer. And now I have this five string electric violin viola. And I have like incredible sound effects that I can add. Like I can make it sound like I'm playing in a cathedral if I want, or I can do, I can, you know, record aspects of my, my instrument. And then I can run them through a particular kind of a, an effects Thing and I can drop it an, an octave or two so I can sound like I'm playing a massive bass or, or cello or something like that. And I can, you know, there's just so many fun things that you can do with music now in terms of the level of production and equipment that we have. And I happen to have, uh, um, my husband happens to be an expert in using that stuff. So I feel like I'm having fun learning some of the techniques that he's been using for years. And it's just so incredibly renewing and relaxing. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like it's just when you're doing it, you are just doing that and you just, your focus is right there. And, and, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think things that we do where we have to be in the experience and we can't be doing it and thinking about something else are the things that, that uh, are really good for us. You know what I mean? You know, it's like, it's like um, my wife and I play chess a bit and neither of us are very good at it. But the thing about playing chess is your, your mind gets to do stuff, lots of stuff. But it's also doing the same stuff that you are doing as opposed to washing the dishes while your mind's thinking about a lot of other stuff. You, you, you know, you're, you're doing the same, you're thinking about the same stuff you're doing rather than thinking about stuff that you're not doing, if that makes sense. And everybody might know that. And I just recently stumbled upon that idea. But anyway, yeah, that's, I think that's what the music does for you, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I do know that um, having the music background that I had um, allowed me to pay attention to nonverbal elements going on in horse human relationships. And so also um, we often do um, in certain workshops, we'll do a, uh, an experience where people make music together and you, you don't have to have any experience with music. The point is to learn how to, to flow and listen and connect non-verbally. And this is supported then by work with the horses. And we also do a workshop um, called Nada Brahma, which is translates as the universe's sound. And so we, we have people come who are interested maybe in music and sound as a transformational experience. And we really do go into the transformational aspects of this. Um, and so people will come and learn these skills more specifically about music and sound. But we have horse activities that then support making music. So I work on both sides of the fence that way. I might work with horses to teach people 
how to relax into and expand a deeper awareness of sound and music. Or I can use sound and music to help people who are working with horses and other animals to learn how to connect more deeply at that nonverbal level. And you live in Tucson, don't you? Yes. Well, outside of Tucson, about an hour, okay. uh, half an hour outside of Tucson. Yeah. Okay. So my wife and I, a few years ago, went to um, Miraval. And that was the first place, in, it's in Tucson, and that's the first place I'd ever had a sound bath with the yes. with the, the um the sound but the the crystal bowls and it's like and the gongs and the stuff and it's like oh it was amazing yeah we actually during the nada brahma workshop we teach people how to create sound baths for each other really? um, and we have a collection of gongs at this point that's rather amazing and to to have four or five giant gongs around you you know as you're laying there and and it just vibrates your whole body and it, it actually shifts things um and yeah, so yeah, Miraval, we have one of my colleagues works at Miraval now as the head of their horse department. Her name is Lucinda Vetti. And okay. um, she's doing a great job. Oh, that's awesome. Um, two of my previous podcast guests, um, a lady named Kerry Lake and another lady named Terry Kubler, they are leading a, a, a trip to Costa Rica in, I think it's in August, I think that I'm I'm going on and my son's going with me and it's swimming with whales and it's it's like the healing from the whale song they say that vibration when the whale when you're in the water with the whales and they sing it just goes straight through you and kind of <laughs> realigns everything so I'm, I'm Oh really that sounds like about. a dream trip. Oh that sounds yeah. so amazing. Yes, yeah, so that's you know a different type of music. Okay, next question is, and this is a good one. What do you? Oh no, you've probably answered some of these questions, but what do you feel your true purpose is? It's to find ways to help us see the invisible and hear what's beyond words. That's very succinct. I love that. Um, what? And remember, you chose these questions. <laughs> They Sometimes. were great questions. You, you, Some, you let me pick several. So the, these were the fun ones that I most resonated you know, with. Sometimes I ask the questions and people look at me like, oh, I don't know. And I have to remind them, hey, you asked me to ask you this question. So what's one right. common myth about your professional field that you wish to debunk? In the field of equine-facilitated learning or equine-facilitated therapy, a lot of times you have people who think that any horse can do this, um, can do this work. And that's true to a certain extent, as long as the horse is relatively safe around humans that don't have any experience with horses. But um, there are actually horses that are gifted in doing this, just like some people are gifted healers or some people are gifted writers or whatever. And if you can really see the horses that you're working with as an individual and who really wants to step in, up and do this, um, there are horses that then you can have a team of horses that are working at a very high level. So just thinking, yeah, if I take some people out to a field of horses and I send them in there, they're going to have, you know, some experiences of some kind. Sometimes they're actually fairly dangerous experiences with people who don't know how to take this work seriously. Um, but 
when once you begin to see horses as individuals, you begin to see who really wants to do this and who's really good at it, and then they take this work to a whole new level. It's similar to George Washington. When I was studying George Washington, um, he actually would choose horses to go into war with him that were exceptional um, in among horses. Um, because when you're asking a horse to go into a bloody battle with people screaming on the battlefield and horses screaming on the battlefield at that time and bombs going off, what you need is a heroic horse. And he had the capacity to not just train heroic horses, but to recognize who in the, the herd of horses was the most heroic and really capitalize on that. So it's really important to see horses as individuals. Even George Washington did that, and that's what made him so successful. We probably won the war only because of George Washington and his exceptional skills that he learned from horses and his ability to seek out and train heroic horses that could take him places that no other horse could. I know in the uh, like the therapy community, like I've talked to a lot of, I've had a lot of, different therapists on the podcast and most there's the whole wounded healer archetype and a lot of people that are therapists have had some trauma in life that they've done some work to work through and then realized oh i want to help other people have the same sort of transformational experience do you think in your experience the horses that are good for the 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 therapy horses, do you think they're kind of the wounded healer archetype? Like they have had some um, trauma in the past or do you feel that the, the better horses for the, the, the therapy work are the more grounded ones who've had a pretty good life? I have both kinds of horses. And um, so, yeah, some horses who've had a rough life, and then come back around and start doing this work, they actually transform themselves um, mm. and become wounded healers. They become real healers. But there are some horses that have never had a bad day in their life, hardly at all. You know, they've been raised well. They, they're, they have great relationships all through their life with other horses as well as humans, and they make exceptional healers too. So um, I really... I don't think you can really generalize. One of the things that I find, though, is it's helpful to think from a polyvagal perspective on the horses that you're choosing for certain kinds of activities. And um, one of those choices that you're making has to do with, with people who are trauma survivors, let's say, and who are experiencing active trauma still that they haven't worked through. You know, they'll a lot of times be attracted to the most wounded horse on the property. Right. There's kind of yes. an emotional resonance that goes on. Yes. Yeah. And that can be helpful. And over time, they can learn perhaps to work with that horse when they develop more skills. But somebody who's been really traumatized, they have what in polyvagal terms is called is they're in a constant state of dysregulation. Their nervous systems right. yep. are in highly dysregulated states. And so when I have somebody come in like that, I'm going to choose horses in my herd that have the capacity to co-regulate a dysregulated human being. Um, and you can't have a, a newly traumatized horse 
co-regulated, dysregulated human being. And by co-regulate, I mean a horse or a human who's co-regulating somebody is using their nervous system to help somebody else become more centered and regulated. And the polyvagal theory teaches us that we're supposed to be able to do that for each other. And that's why working with animals can be so healing because if you've been traumatized by members of the human race, it can be very hard to trust any human in the beginning. But because all mammals have a polyvagal nervous system and they have this capacity to reach out and regulate a dysregulated herd member, let's say, um, you know, you can get a lot of the same physiological and neurological benefits of interacting with and connecting with a horse. And you, if you don't trust humans, then this is a great way. They can work on your nervous system. They can strengthen your nervous system and they can act as a bridge to helping you trust humans as you progress in your healing. And also learn how to set good boundaries with humans and learn how to be assertive without being aggressive. I mean, there's all kinds of increasingly advanced skills that we learn through working with horses. So that's what I mean by that. I, you know, if I, if I have a highly dysregulated person, I'm going to put them with my stellar horse that can absolutely regulate a dysregulated human being. And I'm going to help that horse too. I'm going to create those conditions so the horse doesn't burn out. But then over time, what I'm going to do is teach the person some self-regulation skills. And then we're going to have that person learn over time how to work with the more challenging members of my herd. So then they learn how to use their nervous system to co-regulate a dysregulated horse. And by virtue of that, learn how to do that in their human relationships. So the polyvagal theory helps me to think about who, which horse am I choosing for what purpose at what time? And what pro- progression in that person's um, agenda for learning or healing? Yeah, that makes sense. You know, when I do clinics, the horse training clinics, and people, you know, bring their horse, and a lot of times the horses are in a bit of a dysregulated state, and I've kind of got to help the people get into a more regulated state so that they can help their horse. And I was doing some clinics in Australia a few years ago, and I was talking about this like in the morning, you know, working with some horses or whatever, and I took a short break. I was going to the restroom or something or other, and, and this lady, two ladies come up to me. She said, hey, we've got a question. We're both police officers, and so we have pretty stressful jobs, and so our horses, you know, we don't – you're talking about, you know, trying to get yourself right so that you can help with your horse. She goes, we just – we're not doing any of that. We just come home from work. We've got these two old horses, and we just jump on them and go for a ride, and we feel so much better. I'm like, yeah, well, that someone's got to be helping someone, and in that case, those horses are helping you because they're, you know, they're old, you know, old, broke, really centered horses. Because they were saying, oh, do we need to show up a certain way for them? I'm like, someone needs to show up a certain way for someone else. And in the case of these horses in the clinic, the humans need to show up better to help the horses because the horses are in a dysregulated state. But in your case, you're in a dysregulated state, but your horse is in a regulated state and they're going to help you with that. So, yeah, just that's, you know, you wouldn't be able to come home from your police job and just jump on one of these horses in the clinic and go for a ride because one of you is going to die. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, but, right. But, and but it's probably the horses, not the horse. Right. Uh, but with the horses you guys have, uh, yeah, you've, you, uh, the, the whole point of it was someone's got to be able to help someone else. And so with what you're talking about, you have the well-regulated horses helping the people who aren't as well-regulated. And as they go along, then they become more regulated and then they can help the horses who are dysregulated. 
Absolutely. And this is a, this is one of the key things that, you know, when people talk about a really talented horse trainer or, or a horse whisperer, that phrase still goes around. What I've really determined is that a really what you would say is a, a horse trainer at the level of being called a horse whisperer, which has a mystical quality to it on some level, has the capacity to use their nervous system to regulate a dysregulated horse. So, you know, a really fine horse trainer needs to learn how to use their nervous system to stabilize and regulate dysregulated horses. And so when people come to you with challenging horses or dysregulated horses, what what we do need to teach them, and this is part of what I teach, is how do I how do I help you learn how to regulate your nervous system and then help you learn how to use your nervous system to regulate a dysregulated horse? And so that's another place where the polyvagal theory came in and gave me the vocabulary to talk about what we're really doing here. So, you know, that's part of that one other thing that makes it all work that Ray Hunt was talking about. Ray Hunt's nervous system had the capacity to regulate incredibly dysregulated horses. And, you know, so you see certain people who've learned how to do this, and I'm sure you're really good at this too, Warwick, is that you can use your nervous system to regulate a dysregulated horse. And with the people who come to your clinics, a whole bunch of people who are probably highly dysregulated at times too. So, you know, you are actually performing a service for people non-verbally that once you understand what you're doing, you can actually teach more effectively to others. All right. You know, I had an experience a few years ago where I, 2018, I took the year off from doing clinics for a couple of reasons. Um, But that year I started going to therapy, both group and individual therapy. And so when I went back to doing clinics at the end of the year, I, I didn't do any clinics that year, but I went to, I, there's a horse expo in New Zealand. I would present it once a year. And so I went over to New Zealand to this horse expo. And the first horse I worked with there was this dressage prospect. A lady brings in the arena and she's leading him around. And he's like, you know, worried about all sorts of things and spooking at everything. And in the past, what I would do is have bring him over here and give me the lead rope. And then I will use some techniques on him to help him be a bit better. But this time she leads the horse over to me and as soon as she gives me the lead rope, he just kind of relaxes and his nose kind of comes over to my belly sort of area and he just kind of, and I said to the crowd, okay, I'm not sure what happened just then, but you all saw it. He was completely different as soon as she gave him to me. And I said, so let me give you, I, I, I said, that wasn't something I did right then. It wasn't like I just projected some woo-woo energy at him or whatever but I said I th- I'll tell you what I think it is and then I went on to describe the experiences I'd had in therapy all that year both group and individual therapy and how my nervous system and also a big part of its judgment too but you know how I viewed the world was different but that, I, that was the first time that had happened it's happened a lot of times since but instead of having to do things with horses to have them feel better as soon as they get the lead rope they and it's not all the time and then you know sometimes it's a bit of that and a bit of technique too it's but it, it is a bit of that that one other thing that yes well that, and what what the horse was responding to was you were your nervous system was in a particularly regulated and centered state and that horse immediately um used your nervous system to calm down and 
this is what we're designed to do. That's what our nervous systems as mammals are designed to do. And that's, that's an important piece of what people would talk about as leadership in the horse world. It's not about being this, you know, the alpha of your two member herd. People say that a lot and it's not all about that. Yes. Sometimes, you know, you need to, to, um, maybe be more assertive, um, I have a lot more to say about this. This is why I'm having trouble speaking is because there's like five things in my head right now, (laughs) but I'm trying to figure out the simplest thing to say in this moment. Um, But horses are really looking for people who are in a particular state. And I I can pretty much, much characterize what that state is. It's a state of relaxed alertness and there are ways to get into this state. And you can, this is a prime characteristic of, of a horse who would seek out, your presence for for leadership and comfort if you're in a state of relaxed alertness if you're too relaxed you're kind of disconnected from the environment and the horse has to look out for you right if you're too alert you're becoming vigilant and hyper vigilant and so you're actually going to dysregulate the horse so they they really appreciate people who are in the state of relaxed alertness and there's certain very easy but counter instinctual techniques for getting into that state that we use in our programs. So, um, yeah. So if you think about it, people who are looking for leaders, a lot of times we see these really flamboyant leaders that whip people into states of dysregulated frenzies. And when you, when you whip someone into someone into a state of extreme dysregulation and fear, yeah, you can, you can grab a hold of them and, and, push them in certain directions because their, their neocortex is not online anymore. They're, they can't think for themselves effectively. So you can push them around a little bit towards your own goal. But if you're going to be the kind of leader that really enhances people's lives, that state of relaxed alertness and of power that's tempered by compassion, um, you really, when, when you're in that state, you're the one who could be of assistance and anybody can learn to do these things. You just need skills. Just like think about how long we learn, we go to school to learn how to read or write or how long you go to school to be an attorney or something. All of these so-called soft skills, relationship skills, leadership skills, mindfulness skills. It just takes time. Just like any other thing you're learning. It's not a special gift. It's just something that if you take the time to learn it, you can yeah, that's it's a yin yang thing, isn't it? Like <laughs> relaxed alertness, yeah. compassion. And you can do both. Yeah, be Power. assertive and compassionate. You know, yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's the whole it's the whole balancing us out. You know, I was at a, a in LA a couple of years ago. I was at a men's emotional resilience retreat, and there was a guy there whose wife has horses, and we were talking. You know, like on the third day, once he knew I was a horse guy, and he said. I've heard my wife say that, you, you know, your horse is a reflection of you. Does that mean if you're an asshole, if your horse is an asshole, you're an asshole? <laughs> and I said, no. I said, it's it's almost the opposite of that. It's like your shadow side. Like if you were too timid or if you were too aggressive, your horse might act a bit fearful, you know, and if you're a bit too whatever, your horse might act a bit. It's not it's not a direct reflection. It's almost the, the shadow side. And I said, the thing about horses is we have to have access to all the parts. We need to be relaxed but alert. We need to be firm, but compassionate. We need to be, 
you know, you need to be all, you need to have all the parts. And I think that's what's so good about them is they, in order to, the, the more you want to get along with them, the more you have to explore those parts of you or, or awaken those parts of you that you don't have. And, and what I've found, you know, like with clinics, a lot of times if, if someone is too timid with their horse, when they become a bit more firm, suddenly they're angry. And it's like, you know, they, they can't be firm without being angry. And they have to learn to temper that. And yeah, it's it's all the it's all the yeah, it's all the all that stuff yeah, in the middle in there. That's what makes it all so fascinating. And and yeah, I mean the horses help you integrate things that the human logical brain sees as opposites, but in reality they're not opposites. You can be relaxed and alert at the same time. You can be powerful and compassionate at the same time. You know, you can be assertive and responsive at the same time. And the horses show you that you could do that. And it's actually going to help you in life. So. Yes, very good stuff. Okay, well, it's been, we're coming on two hours here. It's been wonderful talking to you, Linda. So how do people find out more about you, what you do? Well, you can go to my website, which is eponaquest.com. That's E-P as in Paul, O-N as in Nick, A. Q-U-E-S-T.com. And I have a list of a variety of things there. I'm also, I also have some, a variety of online courses that are self-paced with lots of beautiful video and photos of horses and different tools you can use. And I do teach people how to use emotions as information in this first online course, Connections 101, as well as how to use their body as a tuner, receiver, and amplifier for all kinds of information. How to listen to your body. We have a technique for that. And then I also teach some simple yet very powerful co-regulation skills, how to regulate your nervous system and then how to be able to use this to help somebody else who's dysregulated regulate. So that's that's in Connections 101. And um, I'm offering you guys a discount for that um, that you'll be able to access through some of the material we'll be sharing um, through this site here. And... Um, a list of workshops that are coming up. I mean, one that might be the most interesting to to some of the people who listen to this is really happening like April 14th through 17th. And I call it deepening the bond, sentient communication for equestrians, pet owners, and animal advocates. And so this is about learning some emotional fitness skills, some social fitness skills, some self-regulation techniques, some co-regulation techniques for working with your horse or your dog or your cat, or if you work in a rescue of some kind with animals, these are the skills that will help them to do exactly what you did when that horse walked up to you and rested his head in your presence when it appeared that you weren't doing anything at all. This is about creating a nervous system that's going to help everyone around you to be calmer and more centered. And that's the ultimate animal whisperer skill, isn't it? And that's an in-person thing? Yes, that's an in-person one. In Tucson? Yes. Oh, awesome. And you were gonna, you told us about a, an article that you were going to share with us before. Yes, yeah. So I will... Um, have an article available that you guys, it'll be a PDF that you can download for free just by okay. going to the website. And so, you know, um, the details of, of what that's going to look like aren't clear at the moment we're doing this interview, but shortly after I finish the interview, what, whatever I find out how this all is going to work, um, 
I will will have that available. I'm not the technical expert, in other words. I'm getting my computer person to do this for me. <laughs> yeah, we'll get all that sorted and put it in the show notes, and they'll be able to find yeah, it there. Yeah, that'll be great. Awesome. But I have well, a lot thing. of workshops going on um, all the time. Um, so, But the online workshop, I think, is a great place for a lot of people to start because it's yep. self-paced, and you don't have to go yep. anywhere in particular, and the skills yep. will be useful whether you're working with animals or people. So, Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been fun chatting with you. You know, I've been aware of you for many, many years now. So it's been such an honor to have a chat with you. Thank you so much, Warwick. And I've been hearing such great things about you and enjoying some of your podcasts so far and looking forward to tapping deeper. What are are some of your favorite podcasts? If you were to suggest one or two for me right now, what would they be? Well, you've already listened to Christine Dixon and Christine was, you know, Christine's one of the people that introduced me to you. Uh, that was yeah that was a wonderful podcast Christine's one of my favorites Um, I just recently did one with Karen Rolfe which was round two Uh, it was about Karen's personal development journey because when I had her on when I had her on the podcast the first time I knew she was a dressage lady who then got into looking at horses a little bit differently that's all I knew about her and about 10 minutes into the podcast, she starts telling me about how she was on the – she really got into the four agreements by uh, Don Miguel Ruiz and she was she went with him to the Temple of the Sun in Mexico and she was on the top of the Temple of the Sun with a shaman who could make himself disappear and appear at will. And I was like, oh, you're the perfect guest for the journey on podcast. <laughs> um, but when I had about the second one, which only just came out recently, one of the most profound conversations I've ever had, uh, Rupert Isaacson, who wrote The Horse Boy and did the, the movie, that was one of my favorites because he's, uh, yeah. I mean, they've all been fun, but Rupert Isaacson's was was uh, pretty amazing. Nashon Cook. Have you ever heard of Nashon Cook? No. Oh, you're in for a treat. You need to listen to the Nashon Cook one. one. How do you spell I've, that? N-A-H-S-H-O-N. And when oh, I recorded okay. that with Nashon, <laughs> I felt like I was witness to the Sermon on the Mound. I kid you not. The guy is profound. And, and the stuff that comes out, he's 33, the stuff that comes out of his mouth is 3,300 years old, not 33. It's like he channeled <laughs> stuff. So, yeah, that one's that one's pretty amazing to listen to. You know, that, that we, I don't know much about the guy when I get him on the podcast. And I say, so what exactly do you do? And the first 10 minutes, it was just him downloading something from somewhere. And I was just like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> So, yeah, that would, be, that would be a good one to listen to too. So, anyway, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor having you. And keep doing what you're doing in the world because you're making the world a better place. Thank you. So are you, Warwick. Thank you so much. So you guys at home, thanks so much for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Journey On Podcast. Thanks for being a part of the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.